Hello, everyone. It's me, Kelly. Starch McCaller is currently on sabbatical. This very special installment of Born Under Punches is wildly different from anything we've ever done before. So if you enjoy what you hear, please reach out and let us know. We have a lot more ideas in this vein that we're considering trying out going forward. If you're new to the show and you enjoy this episode, then you should probably be aware that our earlier content is heavily focused on tabletop role-playing and doing dumb bits. If that sounds fun to you, then I recommend starting from the beginning. I definitely would not recommend just moving back one episode as it's part four in a series and honestly contains some of the most feral works we've ever recorded. Anyway, we'll dive right into the actual content now, but I just want to give a quick heads up that this episode features a significant amount of visual components and you can watch the full piece on our YouTube channel, linked in the description. We did our best to make it as accessible as possible to the listeners, but in my opinion, the video version is the definitive version. With that covered, I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Canuck is a Slur. This is uh, going to be a sort of show within a show of Born Under Punches, uh, trying to do a little side project here. And we already have a cat appearance in minute one. That's fantastic. <laughs> Toshi, Toshi, you got to come. You got to mug for the camera. He might come sit in my lap here. Let me just. It wouldn't be a That's stream so without beautiful. a cat. Yeah. Say hi to the oh. hi to the world. <gasps> he's got a little. Oh, he's beautiful. Yeah, he's got yeah. a sweet baby. Coloring, but he's not. He's not doing the exact thing i wanted to do oh this is fantastic (laughs) yes all right and if you're listening to an audio version of this you can just already imagine what you're missing so cat tail across the screen Mm -hmm. to explain the concept uh of what this show within a show is going to be why don't i just have our guests here explain explain what your podcast is and introduce yourselves uh jules Ah, okay. I'm Jules, and we are from Australian Gothic, a podcast about cursed Australiana, where we look at aspects of Australian culture and history and media, and then explain what's wrong with it, talk about like the difference between the weird mythology and the actual reality, and uh, every episode ultimately end up blaming everything on colonization. Yeah, that's great. You nailed it. <laughs> and uh, and I'm Lucas. I'm also from Australian Gothic. And uh, it is it's not always a bummer podcast. Um, I did explain it to my sister, and she was like, "Oh, I don't like bummers." And I'm just like, "We're we're nice sometimes. Like, it, we're funny about the bummers." Yeah, exactly. And and even stuff mm. we even stuff like you know. Even if we, you know, whilst we critique stuff, we point out when it's good. Like, you know, we point out moments when Dame Edna made us laugh, you know, yeah. as, as infrequent as it was. Sometimes yeah. we just, yeah, sometimes we really love stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Fantastic. So what I've done is I've sort of stolen your premise uh, in Great. order to kind of present something to you. But I think that's fair game because as you explained to me earlier, Lucas, you kind of stole your idea from Britonology which Very is sort much. of a, yep. a show within a show of trash future. And one thing I like about their format is the sort of explanation of British culture from a British cast member to an American cast member. Mm. Uh, so do either, sorry. And my name is Kelly. I'm here, here from Kanaka Zisler, which is the, definitely the name of the show. 
And do the two of you have any idea of what we're going to be talking about today? No. Um, I, I can just based on what I know about facets of Canadian culture, like some of the grimmer colonial aspects of Canadian culture, I can sort of guess at some of the things where things might be going. But, uh, but yeah, other than that, uh, they, I don't really know that much. I have like a rough idea about cooked things in Canada, but for the actual content for today, no. I have prepared a slideshow. So you guys can see this right now. The, the viewers can see this right now. Mm. The listeners, we will do our best to kind of keep them in the loop as to what's on screen. Mm-hmm. In 2004, the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, colloquially known as the CBC or the Canadian ABC, produced a 13-episode miniseries entitled The Greatest Canadian. <laughs> wow. Oh. The CBC selected oh. <laughs> The CBC solicited nominations from the public and received over 10,000 different names across 140,000 submissions. The criteria were as follows. First, you had to be born in what is now Canada or born somewhere else, but lived here and made a significant contribution to the country. Had to be real. That means no fictional characters or animals. So that means Toshi here who's sitting on my mouse pad right out. And you had to be an individual, no pairs or groups. The result, the reveal of the results began with the first episode in which the 50 to 11th best vote getters were briefly summarized for the top 10. Their actual rankings were withheld. And instead, an episode was produced for each one, each presented by different Canadian, scare quotes, celebrity, acting as a sort of advocate for them. These 10 episodes were aired in alphabetical order, followed by a two-part final showdown in which the, uh, quote-unquote, celebrity advocates debated each other. Afterward, the public was invited to vote on the final ranking of these 10, having had the opportunity to see the case for each one laid out. The CBC then tallied 1.2 million votes and announced the final rankings in a live broadcast, deciding once and for all who was the greatest Canadian. The top 100 with the top 10 rearranged into the new order can still be found online. You could probably do an episode for every single one of these people if you wanted to, but I want to take a slightly different angle today. We're going to start with a really surface level look at the top 10 in descending order. So at this stage, I would kind of like to invite you, you know, just kind of maybe free, free associate here. Um, who, who do you think is the greatest Canadian from who, you know, um, oh, Jules, you I, go first. F- I feel like Celine Dion has to be in there. Um, uh, I vaguely remember something about like, what I might be getting the story wrong, but did Justin Trudeau, uh, Trudeau's mom have sex with Fidel Castro? Is that a rumor? Is that a thing? Uh, I've not come across that, but I, oh, okay. Oh, that I is mean, like maybe because <laughs> like, is I a feel favorite like... uh, conspiracy theory of like okay. the far right in Canada because oh. that you know oh. it's an explanation for why he's such an absolute you know unrepenting communist of course because he's Castro's son uh, and of he course would be it so is much absolutely if he was. true yeah yeah uh, like he'd be so much cooler if he was <laughs> vastly cooler <laughs> yeah 
my my favorite Canadian public figure, I don't know, uh, the comedian Red Green. I haven't That's I haven't one, seen yeah. any of his I haven't seen any of his stuff in years. Um, I do remember one bit where it's like, you know, Red Green was a really, he was like a real rural type of Canadian man. I imagine probably like the Canadian equivalent of a redneck or something like that. Kelly, is that be, would that be safe to say? Yeah, that was sort of the premise. There was like a caricature of this sort of like uh, Canadian bogan sort of thing, I guess, would be definitely, yeah. And I and I know there was one sketch that I remember and that I think of way too frequently where he's running like a helpline for men like him. And it's a dude who's calling in in distress because his wife has left for the weekend and he like is utterly incapable of taking care of himself. And, <sighs> and it's it's really like old man kind of humor. It's just like, hey, where do you keep your beer? Oh, the fridge. And I just every now and Every now and then I think of, oh, the fridge. Uh, just just when I'm feeling when I'm feeling kind of inept around the house. It's just like, oh, where do I keep the thing? <laughs> mm. oh, uh, also, I want to also I want to add as like another answer. I just remember kids in the hall, like kids in the hall is still so far. Oh, but funny. no groups. Mm. No, oh, you're right. No groups. Yep. Mm. Yep. Um, um, the guy who played the character who like crushes people's heads. That 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 individual <laughs> comedian. Fantastic. Yeah. I feel like this probably won't be in the top ten, but it should be. And if enough gays were were, um, I, I also realized that my that my two main real guesses are like like well the first one was Celine Dion and my second one is Katie Lang, which mm. means that I oh. in my head it's only queer people voting in this poll. Oh yeah, absolutely yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I think 2004 was before we legalized gay marriage in Canada, which meant there were no queer people yet. Oh, yes. That... <laughs> Katie Lang hadn't well, been invented yet. Yeah, that's right. This, this, probably oh, was just be- this probably was just before the Katie Lang, Tony Bennett cross al- crossover album that my parents had that I actually really liked. That was a good album. Couldn't I tell don't you. remember when that one was, but she was very big in the 90s. Mm mm. No. So, so I broke down the list of a hundred people. Mm. There's definitely crossover between categories, but in terms of putting people into like one mm. main category, uh, I I broke it down into fourteen musicians, eleven on-screen performers, and eight writers and artists. We have eleven hockey players and five other athletes, eight prime ministers and seven other politicians, and thirteen other activists, ten in or related to the military, nine doctors, scientists, and inventors three broadcasters, and one brewer. Hi there. It's me in the editing dungeon. I hate to break the flow already, but it turns out I fucked up my spreadsheet and didn't catch it until later. This breakdown should actually have 15 musicians and only 10 hockey players. I double-checked, and I'm quite confident that Sarah McLaughlin never played the game at all. Uh, Of those musicians offhand, I think Celine Dion and Katie Lang are both there. Uh, I could be wrong. (laughs) Hello again from Editing Land. I was wrong. While Céline Dion was, in fact, voted number 27, Katie Lang did not make the list. Was Katie Lang robbed? Well, rather than offer my own opinion, I will instead completely debase myself by saying, let us know in the comments. So, I know you're designed to find out, so I will now reveal, with great fanfare, the number one greatest Canadian. Tommy Douglas. Okay. Do, do huh. either of you know who Tommy Douglas is? 
No, sorry. No. No, I wouldn't expect you to. So here's the I funny thing. I feel like thing. that makes him even more niche. Like if if that that works even better for him being the greatest Canadian if he's not well known outside Canada. Mm. Well, yep. I'll give you the a, a bit of a brief rundown on him, and uh, you can kind of tell me what you think. Mm-hmm. So here's the funny thing, in my opinion, with all the nonsense you'd expect from a public vote on a premise like this, with the way people are, I think in the end Canadians actually chose correctly. Now that's also. A very 2004 thing. I feel like if you ran this poll today in the age of like everyone knows public polls, everyone would be trying to manipulate them. It would be a shit show and it would. I don't know. I think I think we would pick a terrible, terrible first pick. I don't know who it would be, but I I don't think it would still happen. Mm. So Tommy Douglas was born in 1904 in Falkirk, Scotland. Uh, but moved to Canada as a young boy who had some medical complications due to an injured knee. At one point, doctors told him his leg would have to be amputated, but it was saved by the generosity of an orthopedic surgeon who agreed to treat him for free, as long as his parents allowed medical students to observe the treatment. He later said this, reflecting on the experience. I felt that no boy should have to depend either for his leg or his life upon the ability of his parents to raise enough money to bring a first-class surgeon to his bedside. Another formative childhood experience involved witnessing the 1918 Winnipeg General Strike, where he saw the RCMP attempt to break the strike by force, including shooting one of the workers dead, as well as wounding at least 12 others. And in a lot of these older things, you you get different numbers coming out. Like, I think I saw sources that said there were like 19 wounded, but they definitely shot a bunch of people. And the, the RCMP is the cops, to be clear. For, yep. for you or anyone who doesn't know, the, the RCMP are essentially like the federal provincial town level police force basically anywhere outside of a major city that has its own police force or the province of ontario which has its own police force um that's where the rcp operates are they are they the mounted police yeah so they have this whole history of like being on horseback that you know not so much anymore unless it's you know ceremonial okay so the mounties are not yeah i mean like the mounties are just cops a hundred percent yeah Okay, well, I thought they were I, kind of park rangery kind of types as well, but oh, that sucks. They they started. I mean, again, they could be their whole, a whole topic on their own, but they started as sort of like a frontier patrol. Later events, like the 1931 Estevan labor riot, three dead, twenty three wounded, and the 1935 Regina labor riot, two dead and hundreds injured, inspired Douglas to enter politics. Uh, so he was at the time in a. a a party called, I think the, was it the CCF or something? It doesn't exist anymore. Hi again, here from the edit. I was correct. The CCF or Cooperative Commonwealth Federation was a somewhat early socialist party founded in, of all places, Calgary, Alberta. A big whiff on my part though, is that I overlooked the connection here that the CCF's first leader, who I am about to mention, managed to just sneak onto the list as the number 100 greatest Canadian, J.S. Woodsworth. He argued against his party leader's pacifist stance by advocating Canada enter the war against Nazi Germany, which he had visited and hated. He even enlisted in the army himself, but was not deployed overseas due to his leg issues. In 1944, Douglas became premier of Saskatchewan, which I will not hold against him, as the leader of the first social democratic government in North America, which created several publicly owned services and utilities and brought electrification to rural areas. 
legislation that enabled unionization of public servants, a provisional uh, provincial bill of rights that preceded even the UN Declaration of Human Rights, and the first taxpayer-funded hospital program in North America. Mm. Oh, shit. Douglas later entered federal politics as the first leader of the New Democratic Party, which today exists as the broadly left one of Canada's three major national parties. His work provincially and federally led to the adoption of the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, as well as the adoption of single-payer healthcare nationwide, and is contemporarily viewed as the, quote, father of what we call universal healthcare, as long as you don't consider dentistry, prescription medications, therapy, ambulance services, physiotherapy, or vision care to be healthcare. And, and why that's the same here oh yeah absolutely yeah yeah, yeah. love love uh, mm. not being able to see my psychologist more often than i need because it's like 200 bucks a pop every time it's just like mm, no <laughs> yeah but i was uh this came up recently online and i think someone was saying that queensland does have free ambulances uh yes yes yeah. fortunately queensland tasmania mm, mm. slightly yeah. ahead on that <laughs> so basically the, yeah. the the previous party he was in like kind of collapsed and reformed as as the ndp and he, cool. he yeah he won its first uh, leadership perhaps most importantly without douglas we would not have had as we understand it the tv show 24 which starred his grandson Kiefer sutherland oh wow huh <laughs> and so his son was donald sutherland uh no so douglas's daughter shirley uh shirley oh. douglas sutherland's mother had an acting career of her own uh, including playing grandma in the 1998 film Barney's Great Adventure. On that note, huh. I'd like to quickly read from a section of the Barney Wiki. Shirley Douglas moved to Los Angeles, California in 1967 after marrying actor Donald Sutherland. She became involved in the American Civil Rights Movement, the campaign against the Vietnam War, and later advocated on behalf of immigrants and women. She helped establish the fundraising group Friends of the Black Panthers. In 1969, she was arrested in Los Angeles for conspiracy to possess unregistered explosives after she allegedly Queen. attempted to purchase hand grenades for the Black Panthers. She, cl she claimed that the FBI was trying to frame her and spent five days in jail. So thanks to the Barney Wiki for that one. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I had heard the Kiefer Sutherland thing a bunch of times. I had never heard the... Uh, Shirley Douglas got kicked out of the United States and kind of probably killed her being like a big screen star uh, because she was trying to buy hand grenades for the Black Panthers. Allegedly. That's like Allegedly. I don't know. It is like, that sounds awesome, but it also sounds like some shit the FBI could have made up. So, which, which again yeah. is also just enjoyable. I, I think a lot like the, like, is Trudeau um, Castro's son thing, you just kind of have to believe the better story. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so to, to sum that up, Tommy Douglas is a pretty solid dude across the board, as long as you don't look into his statements on homosexuality or the topic of his master's thesis. Uh-huh. Which was? Well, you have to understand, like in the 60s, or like, <laughs> this was like the 40s, really the 40s through the 60s, everyone was really bullish on eugenics. But yeah. I don't know. I haven't read the oh. thesis. Maybe, maybe he was being very even-handed about it. I, I, okay, I was gonna I, say yeah. I was gonna say I think this guy is my favorite Canadian, but um ooh. Okay, let's go. Yep. As, on me. Uh as like 
Yeah. I mean, as far as a person from the 60s goes, like it's still a pretty good track record. I don't think he actually like pushed eugenics when he was in office because we did do that here in Alberta in the time. There was like crazy eugenics going on. So um, mm. it's that again, another whole topic we get into. So like, you know, I mean, you know, don't have heroes. Don't put anyone on a pedestal. But yeah. for his actual impact and accomplishments, pretty good. Mm. So I, I kind of mentioned I was a bit disparaging about the concept of a Canadian celebrity. And I've kind of heard this expressed before that, you know, the concept of an Australian celebrity is kind of very like it's very like an uh, an insular and inconsequential scene. Is that right? Very much. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we have a, we have people who are like famous abroad or, you know, you know, get famous for all sorts of cool reasons. But yeah, like our the sort of celebrities you'd see on TV or, you know, Hosting radio on on your like I'm a celebrity get me out of here those kind oh, of shows yeah. are yeah like you know this this person was on a reality show this person hosts morning radio like very minor public figures yeah yeah your your Dave Hughes AL right <laughs> yeah very, uh, Dave Hughes yeah probably the bigger end like probably too big to appear on those shows but oh, okay. but yeah there's definitely a t- yeah there's there's many tiers below Dave Hughes. So I oh, watch a to- lot of a lot of sports players. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I want you to keep that in mind as we talk about the celebrity advocates for for these people. Okay. Yeah. The case for Tommy Douglas was made by former video jockey turned radio heartthrob. George Strombolopoulos. Sorry, I couldn't see that he came up on screen because Toshi's in the way. Oh, that's an amazing early 2000s look. Yeah, that's yeah. pretty much when that is, yeah. Wow, got- I feel like I've been tr- transported back 20 years. Yeah, and I mean, if you're, uh, for all you young kids out there, if you don't know what a video jockey is, uh, ask your parents. <laughs> it's a, probably some of them do. Like, I feel like on TikTok every now and then I get served Gen Z content and they like the early 2000s aesthetic at the moment. They're enchanted by it. And I'm just like, oh, okay. It sucked. (gasps) It was just okay. You don't need to romanticize it. (laughs) (laughs) So before we move on, uh, here's a quick little Canadian joke for you. How do you kill a one-legged fox? How? You make him run across the country. (laughs) It's a terrible joke that I repeat only for journalistic purposes. Okay. Terry Fox is also uh, a fantastic choice, a young cancer patient who embarked on a cross-Canada marathon of hope in 1980 in an effort to raise money for cancer research. He managed to cover 5,373 kilometers in 143 days before succumbing to his illness. Uh, oh. and I, yeah, for anyone that can't see, uh, he did this on a prosthetic leg because he, before he started, he had already lost his leg to cancer. Okay. Perhaps the most oh, illustrative buddy. thing about Terry Fox is that he seems to have figured out the way, as a white guy, to cement your legacy as a genuinely uncancelled, unproblematic king. Die when you're 22. Probably, the case, yeah. Doing activism. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, like, you don't want to be that person who did something amazing and then grow into just the worst 50-year-old imaginable. <laughs> the basis for our podcast. <laughs> yeah. The case for Terry Fox, was made by actor, musician, writer, director, and broadcaster Suk Yin Lee, who I had honestly never heard of, uh, pictured here with former video jockey turned radio heartthrob George Strombolopoulos. <gasps> huh. 
I want them to have met at the during this process. Uh, during the show. Yeah. I mean, the picture you're looking at is much more recent. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Judge is looking say, good. Yeah. Man, uh, her name rings a her name rings a bell. Actually, like, what has she done? I honestly don't know. Of all the information I was packed in here, I was like, she's great. She's mm-hmm. clearly done a lot. Clearly very creative. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll uh, I'll do a dive on her later. Okay. Okay. So, number three, Pierre Trudeau, the fifteenth prime minister. Getting into the legacy oh. of prime ministers is far too messy and complex for what we're here to do today. Suffice to say, if you ask a significant number of people polled for this endeavor, he is the greatest Canadian. If you ask my dad, he's the Antichrist. <laughs> Who's to say? And he's the one who was cucked by Castro. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, cool. Otherwise, he's best remembered as the father of another uncancelled and problematic king, noted woke <laughs> bay Justin Trudeau. Pictured here in the center, wearing the famed Canadian tuxedo. That is a cute picture. It is. It is a very cute picture. I want to get that for my kids. My my mom is a big Justin Trudeau fan. Oh, boy. Yeah. The case for <laughs> Pierre Trudeau was made by political commentator and former broadcaster Rex Murphy. He's not particularly interesting Although he once ran for public office with the Liberal Party, and I should be clear here, the uh, Liberal Party in Canada is sort of our centrist, supposedly leftish party. It's basically analogous to Australian Labour because uh, okay. you do everything backwards mm. down there. You know, your conservatives <laughs> are liberals because of the Coriolis effect or whatever. <laughs> yes. So uh, he strikes me as a garden variety conservative who seems to have gone down the predictable crankpot old man path, getting very upset about the term Great Reset during the COVID-19 pandemic, doing an interview called Refusing to be Cancelled on a right-wing news website in which he Uh hit all the standards on the conservative grievance list and developing a frothing hate for Justin Trudeau. But amazing. Back in 2011, Rex Murphy was on air with the CBC and at least palatable enough to appear on the TV interview show, George Strombolopoulos Tonight. (laughs) (laughs) This is so good. Just just actually Mm. the head of the Canadian media, George Strombolopoulos. 100%. All right, number four, Sir Frederick Banting. There's actually quite a bit that can be gotten into with Banting, but... He was a doctor who served on the front lines in the First World War, who later became known as the leader of the research team that won the Nobel Prize for the successful isolation of insulin for diabetes treatment. The team, believing that the critical life-saving medication should always be affordable, sold their patent to the University of Toronto for a single dollar. This is why today insulin is notoriously cheap and available to everyone who needs it. I haven't looked into that, to be honest. (laughs) The case for I mean, Frederick. Well, oh, go ahead. Hmm. I think it is oh, in uh, most places, but I I've heard stories about the U.S. Um, yeah, one of those things where it's like, hey, my friend can't get insulin. It's just like, oh, oh, okay, you're from America. Oh, all right, mm-hmm. shit, mm-hmm. sorry. The case for Frederick Banting was made by comedian Mary Walsh, pictured here with former video jockey turned radio heartthrob George Strombolopoulos. <laughs> Just just the astronaut's wife kind of thing where we're just seeing him at different stages of his mm. life. <laughs> yeah. Number five, 
David Suzuki. Ah. David, have you heard of David Suzuki? I have, yeah. I, okay. love, I love his cause. David Suzuki is a scientist and longtime environmental agitator. His career is too expansive to cover here, but he's best known as the host of The Nature of Things, a CBC program that is now run for 60 seasons. Suzuki himself hosted from 1979 until his retirement last fall. Wow. There are probably some valid criticisms of his work out there, but after some cursory research, I don't really have anything particular to say about it other than that I take the brave stance that the environment is important and climate change is bad. (laughs) In any case, if you ask a significant number of people polled for this endeavor, he is the greatest Canadian. If you ask my dad, he's a hack and a fraud. Who's to say? Okay. We may revisit David a little bit down the line, but for now, the case for David Suzuki was made by a musician named Melissa Aufdermauer, who I personally had never heard of. Okay, you have. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, big in the the nineties grunge scene. Um, yeah. Was she part of Hole? I I, well, I will, oh, she okay, was I will just, get to it. Sorry. <laughs> it's all good. Yeah. I just didn't expect you to recognize any of these people, so uh, I wrote it mm. all down. Uh, Here's Mm. a little on her from a wiki style website called Academic Kids, and it has a small rundown on the greatest Canadian miniseries on that website. After Maurer first became friends with Billy Corgan after apologizing for a friend who threw a beer bottle at the band during one of the Smashing Pumpkins first Canadian concert dates. Hi again. I may have to pop in a few times. It turns out that Academic Kids really buried the lead here. According to Aufdermauer herself, not only did Billy Corgan apparently fight the guy, uh, her roommate, who threw the bottle, but said roommate later went on to play drums for Godspeed You Black Emperor on their first three albums. Awesome. In 1994, when Hole was in need of a new bassist following the death of Kristen yep. Pfaff, Corgan recommended Aufdermauer to Courtney Love. Aufdermauer won the gig, staying with the band until 1999. In that year, she joined Smashing Pumpkins after the departure of Darcy Retsky and remained That's with right. the band until they disbanded in 2000. Oh. Mm. She also dated yep. Dave Grohl for a while. Oh. Uh, this is just a really dumb aside, but I I looked this up and like Aufdermauer is German for on the wall, which you might argue is like literally the opposite vibe of what you want to have as a musician. <laughs> <laughs> You want a nice, you want a nice, consistent basis. You know they're not going to be, they're not going to be too crazy. You know. No, I mean, you know, she's the she's the basis in those bands that wasn't, you know, dying, going to rehab, etc. So mm. she guess she was kind mm-hmm. of on the wall. So here is <laughs> Melissa Aftermauer during the 2010 Toronto International Film Festival, attending a VIP party commemorating the relaunch of CBC's The Hour as George Strombolopoulos tonight. <gasps> oh my god. <laughs> Some of the connections are a little more tenuous, but this is so good. I can't believe you found this. This is so mm. this is so wonderful. Yeah, some of these took more digging than others. Number six, Lester B. Pearson. Pictured here with, I don't know, some yank. Some asshole. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> Probably some not important. Guy. Like Trudeau, Pearson's legacy is a lot to unpack. He did win the Nobel Prize for Peace, which is well known as the least controversial category and contains no misses, so probably not worth looking into. He received the award for orchestrating the peacekeeping force sent to the Suez Canal in 1957 during the aptly named Suez Crisis. His minority government was responsible for the 1966 Medical Care Act, uh, so this was kind of concurrent with what Tommy Douglas was doing. 
uh, which led to the nationwide adoption of single-payer healthcare systems, as well as cool. the Canada Pension Plan right. and the Order of Canada, which he was later honored with. Uh, and you'll also maybe notice, if you're looking at the slides, that uh, all of these people are at least uh, named to the Order of Canada or the have like a knighthood of the British Empire, uh, with some notable yeah. exceptions. The main accomplishment of Pearson's that I wanted to touch on passive-aggressively was the adoption of the modern Canadian flag. In the lead-up to the centennial anniversary of Confederation in 1967, Pearson formed a committee to finally move the nation on from flying the Union Jack or, worse still, some ugly bullshit naval ensign, and to adopt an official, proper flag that actually looks good. This may come as a shock to you as Australians, but it's actually completely allowed to just go ahead and do this. Oh, <laughs> I, I wish. Mm, mm -hmm. The case was made by the unfortunately named actor Paul Gross, seen here dressed as a Mountie. Interestingly, I couldn't find a single picture of him doing something like appearing on The Hour or George Rambolopoulos tonight. I found four of mm. them. <laughs> Fuck me, Dad. <laughs> uh. All right, next up. Number seven, Don Cherry. Let's put a pin in this one for a moment. At this stage, I just want to quickly note the celebrity advocate for this one was pro wrestler Brett the Hitman Hart, who came in at number 39 in this competition, <laughs> narrowly beating out number 40, Avril Lavigne. <laughs> also seen your picture of the Mounties. A very 2004 selection if I ever saw one. Good it, lord. It should be yeah. noted that I think like at the time that they were doing the voting on this list, like her second album had not come out yet. And yeah, like, when again, with, with that kind of, you know, being established, it was a complete, just like popularity mail-in vote to see the top 100, right? If you had a bunch of fans, you just, they would all vote for you. And they, mm. they it was just raw numbers. There wasn't really like adjudication going on. So like the, the list really reflects that, uh, including one guy who is basically like a local radio DJ who got people to vote him in. He's like, he is officially enshrined on the list because they didn't like, they didn't veto anyone. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. You kind of almost right. surprised there weren't more shenanigans. Mm. Yeah. Is she holding some kind of whip there or something like that? Or possibly, possibly like it's a, a writing thing. Maybe oh, like a okay. cat toy. I, I feel like this is still an Avril Lavigne thing. It's kind of maybe a weird, like she's kind of doing not, she's kind of doing like a scene kid look here. I don't know how to describe yeah. it. That was, yeah, that was this yeah, like you said, 2004. So she would have been like, yeah, she, she could have been doing like Harajuku shit. Oh, we have another cat cameo. This is Momo. Oh. <gasps> oh hello, Momo. Momo, do Double you want to be on camera? Yeah. Look how handsome he is. Oh, oh. gorgeous. Yeah. But hello. he's, he's less into being, uh, um, that's the word I'm looking for. Just like manipulated by hand. Can I can I ask a question about yeah. this picture just before it goes? Yeah. I an idea is forming in my head that what Avril is holding is some kind of decorative mounty riding crop. That was kind of my first and that reaction. This is the the Canadian version of taking a cop's gun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe <laughs> she owns that crop now yeah yes, and you know they're just they're just the taking law. it they're like you can tell how mad he is that they took the crop and yeah that she took it yeah 
Here's Bret Hart on the hour being interviewed by a certain video jockey turned radio heartthrob during his TV heartthrob era. This, he's just he's just the spider of Canadian media. Yeah. Okay, so this is not a mistake per se, but I feel compelled to mention for completion's sake. Yes, Avril Lavigne has been photographed with George Drombolopoulos. Oh, and while we're at it, so has David Suzuki. All right, here we go. Number eight, Sir John A. MacDonald. Uh, what knowledge do you have of John A. MacDonald? None. None. But I'm... I have to say that this, the picture that we're looking at is starting to um, give me some clues. It, about, yeah. yeah, it might mm. also tip my your hand or tip my hand of how I feel about it. So, mm. um, just for audio only listeners, this Thank is you, a yes. stat. This is a statue that has been pulled down. It, it, it has a noose around its neck. It has been spray painted. Um, I get the feeling this happened circa like the two thousand, so twenty. 21 2020 or something like that when there was a lot of pulling down statues of public figures who suck shit so i'm guessing that's gonna color uh this guy somewhat definitely uh i i know they pulled down some statues of him uh during like that kind of george floyd phase uh but i people have been i think they're facing his statues for longer than that hmm even by prime ministerial standards, McDonald's legacy is contentious. In recognition of this, I will attempt to be as fair and impartial as possible. John A. McDonald is on this list for one main reason. He was the first prime minister, which gives him a convenient legacy for even the laziest teacher and the dumbest student. A deeper dive on the subject might yield a more nuanced discussion of what positive accomplishments he may have had, but we're not doing that today. Instead, I'm going to point out his role as one of the main architects of the Indian Act, still its official legal name, and mm. consequently the residential school system. Right. Ah. Uh, yep. yep. Cool. Okay. Yep. Uh, and uh, coincidentally, yesterday, uh, where I am, was actually our uh, statutory holiday, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, uh, and I bought this nice sweater that uh, gives part of its proceeds to... Hey, I'm just going to cut myself off before I guess wrong here. The answer I was looking for was the Orange Shirt Society. Cool. And since nice. my today is, my tomorrow is your today, I feel like my yesterday is someone's today. So, you know, let's say we timed this perfectly. Beautiful. Since my parents aren't here, we're not going to litigate whether this constituted institutional cultural genocide. It was. But we instead are going to remember that in addition to being that by design, the utter negligence within the system also led to a confirmed 4,130 deaths and counting, with new mass child graves still being discovered to this day. Yeah. Estimating the true death toll is massively fraught, and I think there's an extension or extent to which focusing on exact numbers begins to miss the point entirely. But the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's rather conservative estimates place the number of deaths that could be confirmed closer to 6,000. Destroyed, missing, and incomplete records, coupled with other logistical complications, paint a picture that various experts agree is indeed much higher than that. And that's to say nothing of the kind of wide-scale impacts on people that lead to deaths from people affected by that trauma directly and intergenerationally. So, yeah. again, mm. impossible to put numbers on. We're going to yeah, cover... Yeah exactly one statement from McDonald here, just to be absolutely clear on his position toward indigenous people. 
I'd like to give a heads up that this 1879 quote contains some pretty unfortunate language, but I'm choosing to read it verbatim for effect. Mm -hmm. Uh, if this were a different situation, I would be doing a, uh, cartoonish Scottish accent for him, but, uh, I think I'm going to the pass on this one because he was also born in Scotland. When the school is on the reserve, the child lives with its parents who are savages. And though he may learn to read and write his habits and training mode of thought are Indian. He is simply a Uh savage who can read and write. It has been strongly impressed upon myself as head of the department that Indian children should be withdrawn as much as possible from the parental influence, and the only way to do that would be to put them in central training industrial schools where they will acquire the habits and modes and of thought of white men. Oh. They, you did a, they did a, like a Canadian stolen generation. Yeah. They, they stole many generations. Um, uh, one yeah, of the yeah, more yeah. infamous uh, ones was called the hmm. 60s scoop, so named because it happened in the 1960s, uh, was a large, massive amount of people stolen directly from their families by the government. Very cool. Uh, this is probably a good time to mention that I am currently in the place traditionally known as Amiskwetsiwaskaikan, in the traditional territory of the Nehiwak, Nakoda, Nitsitapi, Nakawe, Metis, and other nations in Western Treaty 6 territory. In case anyone is still on the fence, here is a bonus 1910 quote from a man named Duncan Campbell Scott, who later built on McDonald's legacy as Deputy Superintendent General of Indian Affairs. To make the connection clearly, Scott's career in the public service began in 1879 when he was personally hired by McDonald himself. It is readily acknowledged that Indian children lose their natural resistance to illness by habitating so closely in these schools and that they die at a much higher rate than in their villages. But this alone does not justify a change in the policy of this department, which is, and are you ready for this? You may want to have a mouthful of water for this one. Okay. Uh, The policy of this department, which is being geared towards the final solution of our Indian problem. Oh. Huh. I don't know if the the term final solution rings a bell for either of you. I'm drawing a blank. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, 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 but but, yeah. Holy Jesus. shit. Jesus. Oh. It's not, no, oh, you know, I know they're dying, but like, mm. you know, we're just going to keep going. It's pretty mask off. It's about as mask off as a quote gets. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Oh, I want to like. To face a statue? This is, yeah, I wanted to face a statue, but also I'm like, this, you know, chronologically, this is kind of all happening very much around the same time as the like the stolen generations policies are kicking off in Australia and I sort of want to like like I don't have time right now but but one of my little projects after this is going to be kind of comparing the dates and seeing how much like intercountry cooperation mm. there was on this stuff between the two colonies because like Definitely, yeah. Yeah, especially like when Jesus. you were saying, like going up until the sixties, like yeah, that's um, there's same, a bit of a, same here. There's a bit of like you could credit a bit of a zeitgeist there too, because like mm. this is around the same time that the U.S. military is just like massacring like Native Americans as well, um, mm. and like this is the thing you could yeah. get into another time, but like there mm. is a lot of if not cooperation, but learning from others where mm. well. I'm going to be honest, I went a little off script here and made some connections that didn't hold up to fact checking. So 
we're just going to skip over it and segue back in with a part of what was said that is true, which is that British Field Marshal Horatio Herbert Kitchener was an innovator in the field of concentration camps. It was a Lord Kitchener who was like definitely a British mm. Lord, but like he was yeah. important enough in Canada that we named the town of Kitchener, Ontario after him, which it is still right. called. Very cool. Right. Cool. Mm. That's already more time than yeah. any of those people deserve. So we're going to yeah, close sorry. this section with some thoughts from indigenous actor, musician, poet, author, and Sleotet, I think I pronounced that maybe correctly, uh, nation chief Dan George, who incidentally came in at number 80 on this list. His real name, it should be pointed, uh, should be noted, was, and I'm going to, I didn't look up the pronunciation of this, but I think it's uh, Geswanuth Sleot. Hi, me, again. While I did make a concerted effort to look this up later, there simply aren't a lot of pronunciation resources for the Tsleil-Waututh language out there. All I could find was one source that suggested the pronunciation of his given name was something like Tiswano. If you were able to provide a more authentic pronunciation, please get in touch. I'd love to know what it is. Uh, the given English name Dan was assigned at some point early on, and the English surname George was imposed on him when he went to residential school. Mm. it's sort of like i was thinking about this earlier today it's like kind of like an inverse dead name where instead of the like given name someone has you are mm. assigning one that is like unwanted and yeah helpful <laughs> yeah. but you will see oh. him noted mm. anywhere as a uh, dan george but i'm gonna attempt to use his proper name mm. Before we move on, is there any significance to the the laurel material that's on him, or is that just like debris? I have no idea, honestly. It looks like maybe their rope caught some tree. That's a great question. Okay. I was wondering that as well. Okay, okay. But uh, yeah. Um. So some this means some piece of shit had to be on TV to like defend this guy being in the number eight spot. And I know it was two thousand and four. There probably wasn't as much discussion about like past atrocities as as there would be today in either of our countries but uh who who was it who who was like advocating for mcdonald uh we will get to that actually i'm gonna grab okay, something cool. okay. um now yeah. you brought that up so i did go on to ebay and mm. i did obtain the dvd uh version of the greatest canadian because it is not uh fully on youtube you can't find it in the cbc archives and mm. i paid I, I had to scour for like there were things charging like 50 bucks for it i found one for i think 15 and change something like that which seemed like a pretty good deal and it came as a the ultimate insult still with its value village thrift store sticker on it that says 2.99 oh oh my god <laughs> but it's worth it i haven't been able to crack into this yet but i am gonna watch it and i think we'll get some good fodder out of that get your canadian cooey corner happening yeah <laughs> On July 1st, 1967, Guess One Who was invited to the City of Vancouver celebrations for Canada's centennial, meaning 100 years since the formal declaration of Confederation at the aptly named Empire Stadium. Backed by drummers, he delivered a stirring monologue to the 32,000 people present. Footage of the entire speech will be linked in the description, but I'd like to play this particular excerpt. And I have video here, and I will note two things. One is... It doesn't look like it's being done at a stadium, but like multiple sources confirm that's where it was done. This might be like a studio, like post hoc recording is my guess, because it just seems too clean in studio to be like it's a plain backdrop. You'll see. 
Um, the audio is also not amazing, so I have subtitled it for the for the video. Um, I'll see if I can clean it up later, but uh, yeah. So this is this is an excerpt from that speech. When I fought to protect my home and my land, I was called a savage. When I neither understood nor welcomed this new way of life, I was called lazy. When I tried to rule my people, I was stripped of my authority. My nation was ignored in your history textbooks. We were less important in the history of Canada than the buffalo that ranged the plains. Uh, you said that was from 1967. Yep. Yeah, okay, that was that was around about the time that in, that Indigenous Australians and Torres Strait Islanders got the vote, I believe. So, so no, it was a, yeah, mm. a, another weird confluence there. Yeah, I think yeah, Aboriginal would... people did not legally get to vote in Canada until 1960. I think. Mm. Ahead of us on that, I think. Yeah. Yeah, hurdling a lowered bar, tripping <laughs> over a lowered bar. Yeah. The case for John A. Macdonald was made by British-born author and historian Charlotte Gray, who, being older and more of a text-based media figure, does not spend a lot of time giving interviews on CBC. However, she can be booked to give talks via an organization called the National Speakers Board, and guess who else is also saved in my saved speakers on their website? Ah, That's right. Connection made. If somebody just goes both of them for the same event, we Mm. can get a picture of them together. (laughs) What's what's Charlotte Gray up to? Sorry, the cats are making noise. Oh. So what what what's Charlotte Gray's uh political leanings nowadays? I tried to look into it. So she's weird because uh maybe she's called sort of like a I don't know, like a Kanakaboo. She's born in England and has lived here for like i think since she was like 18 maybe so like fair enough she's been here for a long time um and i really tried to dig through her stuff to see if she was like you know like a mask off psycho or something but i think she's really of that very sort of um don't look too deeply centrist sort of vibe of like she'll give these uh talks about canada and she'll kind of be doing this like really soft jingoism jingoism of like this is why it's such a great country and it's just like very surface level and bullshit anyway i'm really excited to watch the Mm -hmm. debate episode so i can watch her debate with pro wrestler Bret Hart (laughs) over who should be the greatest canadian Awesome. So actually, once I once I pop into that footage, I will have uh, her and George Strambolopoulos on the same screen at the same time. So if I wasn't a hack and a fraud, I would have done that already. I I really want all of Bret Hart's debates to actually just be wrestling matches. Yeah, just, yeah. I think I think he could mm. probably take her. I don't know. I haven't seen mm. her fight, so. <laughs> you never Charlotte know. Gray and Bret the Hitman Hart in a ladder match. I don't know. I reckon she's got a shot. Mm. Never, never count anyone out. Mm. All right, next one. Alexander Graham Bell. So, okay. certainly the least Canadian person on this short list, uh, born and raised in Scotland, split most of his, adult, his adulthood between Canada and the U.S. Bell was an inventor that is most commonly credited with the invention of the first functioning telephone system, meaning he is one of the main reasons you now stare at a little misery rectangle for far too many hours every day. Oh. 
And <laughs> it's also been notable that like they did like a hundred Great Britons list and he also made that list. So like, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I think it kind of speaks to the silly nature of making these lists, but. Mm. I like the idea that he, re- he thought that one day people would be able to get porn on the telephone. And yeah. that was his like driving <laughs> motivator. I say, imagine if you could see a woman with huge cans on this. I know he's Scottish. But I don't know. Yeah. Imagine going back in time and and finding him and just giving him that information. <laughs> going we back in time and showing him your Twitter feed. <laughs> yeah. Look, look at this picture. That is. Carbs. That is the face of a man that is down bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The Bell System conglomerate that traces lineage to the company he co-founded in 1877 has descendants today in both Bell Canada here and in AT&T in the United States, meaning the legacy of this man lives on in the form of telecommunications oligopoly on both sides of the border. Bell Canada is particularly reviled by some of us for its annual appropriation of mental health awareness as a cynical and effective marketing ploy putting Mr. Bell in a a rather elite company with perhaps only Nikola Tesla when it comes to generally cool inventors whose names are now wielded by garbage companies run by garbage people. (laughs) Um, And uh, are you kind of familiar with our telecommunications oligopoly we have here? No. Uh, No. It will come up again later. Uh, It's why our like data prices are some of the worst in the world. Mm. Oh, wow. The case for Alexander Graham Bell was made by journalist Evan Solomon, who has appeared on The Hour. However, since most of the show's history has not been archived properly, uh, meaning they have it all in flash video and haven't fixed that, (laughs) you will have to settle for the episode thumbnail and pretend that Chubby Checker here is Evan Solomon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god. And number 10. You can't believe what? Oh, I can't believe Chubby Checker is still alive. Well, I mean, this is probably this could be like 15, 20 years ago. Oh, fair mm. enough, fair enough. But no, I think he's still around. <laughs> and looks Amazing. identical somehow. Number 10, Wayne Gretzky. I know about uh, him. Yeah. yeah, you've heard his name? Yeah. Mm-hmm. A lot could be said about the value of trying to rank people like athletes and entertainers on the same scale as activists, scientists, and political leaders. However, we simply don't have the time. But if you are going to include sports figures, Gretzky is a slam dunk. Known in Canada as the Don Bradman of hockey, Gretzky is undeniably Canada's greatest athlete and one of the most talented and successful competitors in any sport ever. I won't get into any of the hockey-specific rationale that makes Gretzky such a singular individual because I do need you to be awake for the rest of this episode. Outside of that, Gretzky's public persona is typically comparable to a slab of unseasoned tofu, so there isn't much else to say, although, when skimming Wikipedia, I did catch mention of him unequivocally praising George W. Bush at the outset of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, and became extremely bummed out. I am now done discussing Wayne Gretzky. Oh wait, no, just Uh, before that, can I just ask, in in, in this picture that you've shown us- Which one? uh, Why is he foamy? Uh, What's- I think they're having some locker room shenanigans there. Okay. With some very strategically okay. placed phone. Yeah. Okay, so for listeners, there's we've got two photos. Um, yeah, describe this is, in great detail, please. Yeah, okay. So the one on the left is just like a very posed sort of magazine kind of photo of Gretzky wearing just like little red shorts, shoes, sitting on sitting on the ice 
in an ice rink uh, holding his uh, blades. Uh, sorry, his... Ro- what are they called? Again? Skates. Skates? Skates, yeah. <laughs> and uh, then the one his on the blades. right... His blades. His blades. That's what we're calling them swords. there. Yeah. Uh, he has an incredible curly mullet. It, he would have gone down wonderfully in Australian sport of that era. And the one on the right is him in a locker room uh, being lit by a bright flash, and he's got, like bubble bath bubbles all over him uh it appears he appears to be naked and the bubbles are obscuring his groin uh yeah like he's like kelly said some shenanigans must be happening he looks quite pleased about it (laughs) he does fabulous description couldn't put it better myself you know what we have room for a third photo here's gretzky and strombo (laughs) the case for wayne gretzky was made by deborah gray A website I mentioned earlier, Academic Kids, uh, has kind of the list here, uh, describes Gray as a Reform Party of Canada MP and a motorcycle enthusiast. (laughs) Two roughly equally important things. Um, The Reform Party was like kind of a shitty conservative party that it was like a splinter conservative party and then it kind of died out. Uh, She's actually from here uh, in Edmonton. I don't claim her. Whatever. Um, but I mean, she's kind of like old school conservative, meaning not completely foaming at the mouth about the worst stuff from what I've seen. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway. Listeners, the, the photo that Kelly has just posted is, is an older woman on a motorbike wearing full motorcycle levers and one of them, one of them German tank helmety looking motorcycle helmets, which I understand now if you're wearing one of those, you're, you're probably a bit fash. You know, I never really looked at the helmet at all. Oh, okay. really? Could be right. But, uh, yeah, oh. I've, I'm sorry, sorry, Jules, that you got excited for a moment because I, when I saw uh, look, Reform I, Canada Party, I was like, yeah. uh. <laughs> oh no, it's not the good kind of reform. I, I just, you just showed me like an an older woman in leather on a motorbike, and I was like, oh hey, yeah, all right, cool. But that's um. I I didn't realize that the other uh, side was allowed to have them. Yeah. Is she gay? Not that I know of. I oh. uh, I didn't write it down because I couldn't really be bothered to spend any time on her. But I'm pretty sure she would have been one of the people, you know, doing the no yeah. vote on same sex marriage at the time. Oh, she sure fucking was. Well, I don't I don't I don't think this this behavior this motorbike behavior should be allowed. Then. Well, yeah. speaking of which, that's yeah. You know who else is a motorcycle enthusiast? <gasps> George! George, 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 George. With yeah. a very, very nice looking... Uh, it's George at another stage of his life. I'm not going to guess. Um, with a very nice kind of vintage kind of worn-looking Honda motorbike of some kind. Yeah, Momo, you have to leave the microphone alone. That's kind of the hard line here. Um. Um, and he's wearing bike. the wearing old denim by the looks of it. Uh, look, mm. I'm liking this look. I I want to steal it actually. Yeah, this is our second Canadian tuxedo. You could rock that. You could rock that. Yeah. I don't know if it if it gets cold enough in Brisbane for you to have the the sheepskin lined um, jacket, but you know, come come visit Canberra. <laughs> so certainly not right now, as it's like it's no. starting to come into spring in Brisbane, and it's getting just like. We're just gonna we're just gonna have days that are like hot, and then it's just gonna be fucking freezing right after you put your jackets away. But yeah, I no, you can wear that in Brisbane mm. during winter, just because we're right. giant sissies about the cold. Oh right, mm. cool. Now you'll notice uh, 
if you are able to see right now that on the side of this page, in addition to the top 10, they have a little honorable mention for number 11 here. It's a man named Louis Riel. And mm. you might kind of wonder like, well, what, like, why would you mm. throw number 11 on there? Like, who cares? So I would be remiss if we didn't do a small diversion into the wider list here. Mm. Number 11, Louis Riel, prophet, infallible pontiff, and priest king. Okay, sick. And Bioshock villain. <laughs> yeah. We don't know what the original ranking of the top 10 was or how far out of it Riel was in that popular vote. All right. Now, incredibly enough, I did find an answer for this. Buried deep in the recesses of one of the bonus features of the Greatest Canadian DVDs is the following comment from Mark Starovich, series co-executive producer. Anyway, Louis Riel came number 11. Um, that shows you the incredible distance that uh, Aboriginal and Métis issues have come mm -hmm. uh, just in the past 10 years. He almost, within a couple hundred votes, made it into the top 10. Yeah. That is pretty damn close. He was and is a deeply polarizing figure in Canadian history, and what makes him particularly interesting as part of this specific conversation is probably best summed up by the first episode of the miniseries, which briefly covers the top 50. For, for those who aren't familiar with you two, uh, Lucas, you work in like video editing and production stuff, right? Yeah. So yeah. maybe you'll have an opinion here. I, I put it to you that they are, um, they're making a choice, a couple of choices here. Here we go. All right. The typical name on this list is a white man and Canadian patriot. Our next entry, who came within a whisker of making the top 10, shakes up the stereotype of the greatest Canadian list, as he's not white, and you wouldn't exactly call him a Canadian patriot. After all, he's the only guy on the list tried, convicted, and hung for treason. Not white? Yeah. Is it <laughs> Armenian? He is, uh, he is Métis. Have you heard of the Métis? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, okay. So the, the Métis, yeah. The Métis are an ethnic group uh, in Canada. It's, uh, like, it's the same uh, root word as, like, mestizo, which is what mixed people are called in, like, a lot of, uh, like, Central and South America. Um, mm -hmm. So basically, it, they're, you know, you're kind of taught in school is like, oh, these are people who are descended from um, like communities that involve the marriages of like white and indigenous people. And like that's it doesn't cover the very specific dynamic of like from anything I've seen. It was always very specifically white men and indigenous women, which I, th I think I don't know how to articulate it, but I feel like that's irrelevant. Yeah. Mm. Um, but the, the Métis are now a recognized group that is like, um, I, I, you know, I listed them in the territorial acknowledgement there. Um, they're considered an indigenous group, um, like legally, um, that has their, um, I don't know if it's the wrong word. Is it the same as having status? They, it's like the, there's sort of like three, I think, overarching groups that are enshrined like legally, which is like First Nations, Métis and Inuit, which is also recognized mm -hmm. distinctly. Mm. So he was Métis. Hi, again. I fucked up. In doing this digression, I accidentally skipped a very important line to start this section. Jules and Lucas didn't get this context, but I want you to, so I'm just going to drop it here where it belongs. 
Not only is Louis Riel the only person in the top 100 to be executed by the Canadian government for treason, the man who signed his death warrant was none other than John A. Macdonald. It's a densely layered and complex history, but in short, mm -hmm. uh, born in 1844 in what is now Winnipeg, Manitoba, Riel was a leader among a Métis population that was, in various forms, trying to assert itself during the expansion of Canada proper. With his, mm -hmm. it's, like they were, where they were in Manitoba was like, it's sort of that thing where like, I, I know they had this in the US where like a state wasn't a state yet. It was just sort of like government owned territory. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a lot more autonomy for like settlers and indigenous people alike before the actual formation of new provinces and like the formal westward expansion. With his life under threat by pro-Canadian militias, he fled to the United States, spending the next decade or so in varying degrees of exile and varying degrees of mental wellness. Meanwhile, many of the same conditions of unrest were developing as the government continued to formally expand Canada westward, and Riel was recruited by local leaders to aid them in protest. Due to a series of wacky incidents, Riel ended up leading a small group of hardliners in direct military action against the Canadian government, which ultimately did not go well for him. He was captured, tried, and convicted of treason. Many, mainly mostly French Canadians. Oh, and I should also mention that like the the settlers who were like part of the founders of the Métis communities were heavily or maybe entirely like French Canadian settlers. So many, mostly French Canadians, appealed to Macdonald to grant him clemency, but ultimately the Prime Minister went ahead with the execution. Sir John said on the matter, he shall die, though every dog in Quebec bark in his favor. This summary wow. does not even come mm -hmm. close to doing the story justice, but I think it really speaks to the rather schizophrenic and confused identity of colonial Canadian culture that both Riel and Macdonald are in roughly the same shortlist for the greatest Canadian, with no apparent yeah. self-awareness for what this means. That's, that's, that's incredible. Mm. That is our quick overview of the top 10-ish. Do you remember we said we'd put a pin in one entry? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So everything we've done so far uh, has been a ruse. I tricked you. Uh, I didn't really have, I didn't set out initially to talk about the, the greatest Canadian. Um, I just wanted to talk to you about Don Cherry, which is number <laughs> seven on our list. Donald Stewart Cherry was born. Uh, sorry. Have you heard of Don Cherry? I've heard the name. Okay. Mm. Then this is going to be great because I really wanted you to know absolutely nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Donald Stewart Cherry was born on February 5th, 1934 in Kingston, Ontario. His maternal grandfather fought with the Canadian Expeditionary Force in the First World War. His much older paternal grandfather was one of the first members of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, uh, which was at that time called the Northwest Mounted Police. And his mother was a tailor at the Royal Military College, all of which may or may not be foreshadowing. He has a younger brother, Dick Cherry, who is not relevant to the story, but bears mentioning due to having a funny name. <laughs> Don dropped out of high school, possible foreshadowing, to focus on playing junior hockey and eventually began a minor league professional career as a journeyman defenseman. Cherry claims to have moved 53 times in his playing and coaching career, one that was important enough to miss the birth of his firstborn child. Now, I will say, wow. not that we have to mm -hmm. hand it to anyone here, uh, this was like pretty much would have been the standard at the time. Uh, that was just, that's just sporting culture until pretty recently, I would say. Mm. It should also be noted that among the men who coached him were names as ridiculous as Hap Ems and Punch Imlock. 
Incidentally, during his playing career, Cherry picked up the nickname Grapes along the way. It would stick with him permanently. And I'm going to use that on occasion, not for any kind of like real affinity necessarily, uh, but more so just because it's it's nice way to kind of break up the variety because his mm-hmm. name's going to come up a lot in the next while. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, yeah, when I say professional, uh, like, I mean, I, gu- I guess this is a good time for you guys to kind of chip in here. How do you feel about sports? <laughs> Um, uh, we, our, our, our next episode that's about to be released oh. really goes into that. And it's that, uh, ni- neither of us grew up in families that were pig on sports. Both of mm-hmm. us played sports at school cause we were sort of made to, um, I personally have started entering my jock era Due to the um, incredible performance of uh, the Matildas at the recent Australian, uh, the recent <laughs> Women's World Cup soccer, Australian Women's World Cup soccer, which I will actually say the Canadian team had a very, very attractive coach. <laughs> I thought you were going to say an incredible Priestman. performance. No, no, we beat them. Mm. Um, but Bev Priestman, hello. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, I'm also, also not a jock. I I should have mentioned in that episode as well. I did for a while there in, you know, I don't know. I haven't done it for like six years. I was pretty good at Japanese jujitsu at one point. Uh, not the Brazilian That's not one. a jock sport. Yeah, I know, That's I know, a nerd exactly. Sport. It's, it's very, it's entirely <laughs> a nerd sport. I bring that up just to say that, like, yeah, the one martial art I was, the one sport I was drawn to is the fucking nerdiest one. Are you telling me there's not a table full of jock supplies behind you there, Lucas? <laughs> no, it is painting supplies. I know it's a workbench, but if you look closely, you can see, you can see paint, you can see dollies, you can see... Yeah, sort of. You look sort of yeah hereish. These are the unpainted ones. Mm-hmm. And you're painting. You're painting for what specifically? Uh, Warhammer Underworlds. That's right. Ah, <laughs> uh, it's horror shit. Yeah, that's horror shit. I am also making my daughter a bedside light. I'm oh, doing like a cute. some cool resin art with some LEDs in it. So it should be like a little castle at sea. It should be very cute. Hence that's the hence nice. the soldering iron up there. Mm. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I mentioned their minor league professional career. So you're considered you know, a professional if you're paid. Uh, the way that professional hockey works in North America is you have, you might have heard the term like for baseball, like majors and minors. Mm-hmm. We essentially have that in hockey as well. So the, the National Hockey League is the, um, the major league. The American Hockey League is the minor league. So when I talk yes. about uh, a lot of that playing coaching career, we're talking about the minor league. But... Don Cherry's illustrious career in the NHL, the major professional hockey league in North America, officially began when he was called up by the Boston Bruins to replace an injured player, also with an absurd name, Fern Flamin, on March 31st, 1955. Interestingly, Cherry's NHL career eventually ended on the rather auspicious date of March 31st, 1955. He played one game. (laughs) Amazing. That night, the Bruins lost to the Montreal Canadiens and were eliminated from the playoffs. He claims he had a good opportunity 
to make the team at next year's training camp, but suffered a separated shoulder playing baseball and required surgery. Whether or not playing 16 years in the minors was a better indicator of his ability to make the big leagues will be left up to the listeners. <laughs> After retiring as a player, Don found employment as a construction worker, Cadillac salesman, painter, and eventually a hockey coach. I found one fun passage from this period sourced from an ESPN article that was generally pretty glowing in its praise, but offers a nice little peek into who we're about to discuss. Uh, and I have to kind of like come clean here in that as much as I sometimes pride myself on my enjoyment and maybe even aptitude at making silly voices, I, I can't do Don Cherry impressions. So I'm going to have to read these in my voice, which... Uh, as you may learn later, is not going to quite do them justice. But here we go. He took a construction job in Rochester, New York. As St. Patrick's Day approached, Cherry, a devout Protestant, thought it would be a good idea to paint his tools in hard hat orange, a decision that, not surprisingly, oh. didn't sit too well with his mostly Catholic co-workers. Oh. I put God Save the Queen on the back of my hard hat, Cherry says, still getting a grand chuckle oh out of the God. stunt almost 40 years later. Oh. I was always like that. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, hello again. I kind of blew past this initially as sort of a generically douchey thing to do, but when putting the timeline together, I thought a little more about when this story would have gone down. Based on the information we have, this incident would have happened in either 1970 or 1971, which, if you're not familiar, is pretty fucking close to the height of the troubles, or at least the beginning of the era of peak violence. So, not great. Okay. He, yeah. How did did he get the shit kicked out of him? It doesn't say. I was going to say. Was he was he just was he just able to defend himself while being attacked by like a bunch of Irish dudes? I mean, he was a he was a hockey tough guy, so maybe I don't oh, yeah. You know what? And that's his story, so who mm. knows how true it is. <laughs> He briefly attempted to come back as a player before being given the opportunity to take the reins of his minor league team mid-season after the ele existing coach, allegedly, was punched by a fan and decided he didn't want to coach anymore. <laughs> I couldn't find a source for this, but I, again, I want to believe this is true. <laughs> Thus began Cherry's career behind the bench, which we'll gloss over very briefly. His win-loss numbers were respectable he won the ahl's coach of the year award after his third season this led to his team's nhl affiliate again the boston bruins to call him up again this time as their head coach over the next five years he brought them to the stanley cup finals twice and won the coach of the year award once at this level as well cherry was eventually fired by the bruins after unfortunate exit from the 1979 playoffs in which a costly mistake prevented him from bringing the team to the finals for a third time Reflecting on this much later, Cherry had another I could have been great moment that makes for a fun quote. And this is again from that ESPN article. We'd have won the Stanley Cup and then Harry wouldn't have been able to fire me, Cherry says without hesitation. My life might have been a little different. They liked me in Boston. I was a Southie mm -hmm. to them. I was heavier. I had a big face. I'd say things. <laughs> I'd say things is... <laughs> I could not tell you what he means. <laughs> So he was like the token funny Canadian or something like that. Like, you know, the funny foreigner or something like that. He was otherwise unremarkable, but he had a funny voice. Well, maybe you'll have a chance to tell me that if that's the case. However, one might call his coaching record into question. For one thing, he inherited an extremely talented team to begin with. 
After being let go from Boston, he found a new gig at the helm of the worst team in the league at the time, the Colorado Rockies. Here's how one player recalled his leadership style. And in this quote, this player is comparing him, uh, comparing Don Cherry to a very successful coach uh, named Fred Sherrill. I don't remember Freddie ever really raising his voice and yelling. He didn't have to. If he wasn't happy with you, you'd know about it. He could be pretty tough on you when he had to be, but he didn't yell. We all respected Freddie so much. We all knew what our role was on the team. Freddie knew how to get the best of his players, prepare his team to play, and adjust things when he needed to. That's why he won championships at every level. With Don Cherry, when I was in Colorado, it was just the opposite. We didn't have a good team. So in fairness, there was only so much any coach could do with our roster. But Don didn't know how to coach, and that made it worse. <laughs> All Don knew how to do was yell. He would ridicule his players nonstop to try to hide the fact he couldn't coach. He tried to compensate by yelling and tearing guys down. Things went wrong, he'd yell louder. We had a lot of young players on our team, and Don had mm. no clue what to do with them. No clue. So he'd just scream and try to intimidate the guys by acting tough. I saw through his act right away. My last game with the Rockies, I'd had enough. Don was screaming at one of our young players, like always, and I finally turned around to him and said, Don, why don't you just shut up? He got <laughs> in my face and said, what did you just say to me? I said, you heard me. I said, shut up. After the period, we really got into it in the dressing room. A lot of my, um, a lot of my, my awareness of any Canadian culture comes from the show Letter Kenny. Oh, sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. And is is the coach on Letter Kenny based on Don Cherry? Is that uh, what's going on I there? I feel like he's based on like many, okay. many hockey coaches. I don't All think right. he was unique in this respect. Okay, okay. I was like, <gasps> and, and that's, I was like, and that's sports like coaches too. Kenny. You see it like, especially um, in like baseball, hmm. the baseball managers. And I think hmm. like you see that with like, I'm not like a soccer fan, but you see clips like that too. Like it's, I mean, it's sports, right? You have your your sporting mm. culture, and there's there's so much to say about it. But let's let's keep going. All right. It's yeah, almost, sorry. sorry. Yeah. Just it's almost like I was going to say, is this a a hockey specific thing? But like, no, it's just a sport. I think just management style, like people who can't lead, just become pricks. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Mm. Mm. So. During his first season with the team, this behavior was on full display in one notorious mid-game dust-up. Here's how a profile in the Hockey Writers describes it. Quote, Many observers, including Cherry himself, feel that one particular late-season incident sealed his fate. Defenseman Mike McEwen was a favorite of the Rockies' owners. In a March game against Chicago, he disobeyed Cherry and stayed out too long on several shifts. After the Blackhawks scored what would be the winning goal on one of McEwen's extended shifts, Cherry grabbed him by the jersey and shook him when he returned to the bench. McEwen left the team for several days but came back after meeting with the general manager and the owners. Cherry later claimed that he believed McEwen returned to the team because he was promised that Cherry would be fired. The Rockies' final home game was a fitting farewell. The Denver Arena was in the midst of a blizzard, yet over 12,000 people made their way to McNichols Arena to see the Rockies play Pittsburgh. Cherry came out for the start of the game wearing a cowboy hat and cowboy boots. Rockies player formed two lines and crossed their sticks in an arch for Cherry to walk through. The Rockies won their home finale, beating the Penguins 5-0 for their 19th and last win of the season. Their final record was 19 wins, 48 losses, 13 ties. Ooh. For those of you who aren't sports fans, that's not good. No. <laughs> 
No, the numbers didn't seem amazing on that one. No. And for him to be making like grand entrances yeah. during this during this uh, pretty fucking bad season is uh wow. Sir, you have been fired. <laughs> I really wish I had video of that entrance. Mm. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> Another famous incident from around this time is one that I was disappointed to confirm happened after Cherry's departure from the Boston Bruins. So it has no relevance to our story. Oh. With that being said, I am still going to show you the clip because it is a truly <laughs> incredible piece of hockey history. Excellent. As uh, the fans are now getting involved, uh -oh. as O'Reilly oh, is no. out into the stands, and this is going to be something, O'Reilly's into the stands fighting with a Ranger fan, and all the Bruins are going over. Gilbert is in there, <laughs> Peter McNabb. Wow. They're all into the stands. McNabb's going up to grab somebody about seven or eight rows up. <laughs> well, this is too bad that after the game is over, it gets out of hand like this. And uh, <laughs> you've got to worry about a spectator. Well, the Bruins and are at a decided disadvantage, Fred, with those skates, and uh, somebody <laughs> could get seriously hurt. Oh, uh, this does the game no good at all. <laughs> the... the Look, their ability to, to climb out of the rink and then climb over chairs wearing, you know, ice skates, uh, God, I, I would be running. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know if you kind of saw those mm -hmm. kind of last few moments, but that was uh, a man beating a fan with his own shoe. <laughs> I couldn't quite see. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit hard to see, but it's um, the, the man who, the, the player who's beating a fan with the shoe that he pulled off the fan is a guy named oh. Mike Milbury who also became uh, a tenured broadcaster on TV, but uh, he's <laughs> American, so we incident. don't really get to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, Mike Milbury is a huge piece of shit, but unfortunately, he's okay. just mm. too American for this show. Mm. Mm -hmm. Our story really picks up in the spring of 1980, around the time of Cherry's firing by the Rockies, when he began yet another career that of a broadcast analyst with the very same Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. The CBC was mm. the home of Hockey Night in Canada, or HNIC, a massive natural cultural touchstone. He struggled early on, being relegated away from an in-game color commentary role due to a recurring tendency to openly cheer for one of the teams playing, especially if, the, if they were the Boston Bruins or the Toronto Maple Leafs. In 1982, Cherry was given his own segment called Coach's Corner, and his star began to rise. But there was still an ingredient missing. See, at this time, Hockey Night was hosted by a fairly straight-laced generic man named Dave Hodge, who got the job back in 1971, narrowly beating out a then-obscure radio and game show host named... Uh, I was hoping I could trick you into saying George Strombolopoulos, but this is before his oh, time. Oh, sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, narrowly beating a then obscure radio and game show host named Alex Trebek. <gasps> huh. Wow. I know him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to quickly read, uh, for those who don't know, Alex Trebek is the uh, famed host of Jeopardy. Mm. I want to mm. quickly read from an article in the Hockey News describing HNIC's executive producer, Ralph Mellenby, going over candidates with his boss, the, uh, the president of the production company. So here we go. As they watched the audition tapes of the five finalists, the more Mellonby wanted Trebek to fill the chair, but he was overruled by his boss, who had a strict rule that immediately eliminated Trebek from the running. 
And it quotes him in here. We're watching his audition, and I said, Ted, that's the guy I really want, Mellon B said. And he said, we're not hiring him. We don't hire guys with mustaches. So I hired <gasps> Dave Hodge. Oh my Hell God. yeah. Mellon B can't quite recall why the network simply didn't ask Trebek to shave off his mustache. It must have been fate. My God. It's oh, a good, good question. Luck. Why wouldn't you just ask him to shave his mustache? Also, why would you have a no mustaches rule? It's just not appropriate for a man to be on TV with a mustache. I don't know. It's 1971. You tell me. <laughs> God. Oh, was it? Yeah. Oh, God. That could have. That's so weird. Oh, that rules. Yeah. <laughs> so we're going to quickly talk about him. Uh, Hodges. Sorry, Dave Hodge. I mean, his 16 year tenure as host is not particularly of interest to us. However, the way he went out is worth noting. One Saturday in 1987, Hodge was feeling a little frustrated that the CBC was looking to cut away from live sports in favor of scheduled news programming for the second time that evening. So, like, I think, uh, I don't know if like, maybe there's analogous to the BBC or ABC, but, like, the CBC is just, like, especially at that time, it's just, like, that's the channel. So you get sports mm -hmm. on it, you get the yep. news on it, you just get whatever the CBC is going to run. Okay. Mm -hmm. Earlier in the day, it was the National Men's Curling Championship that was cut away from, and this time it was the overtime period of a hockey game. Informed only a few minutes beforehand that the producer's decision was going ahead, he ad-libbed his frustrations. Now, uh, Montreal and the Philadelphia Flyers are currently playing overtime, and uh, are we able to go there or not? We are not able to go there. That's the way things go today in uh, sports and this network. <laughs> And uh, the Flyers and the Canadians have us in suspense and will remain that way until we can find out somehow who won this game or who's responsible for the way we do things here. Good night oh. for Hockey Night in Canada. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Spicy. <laughs> yeah. So the reason we diverted um, to mm. this little side uh, quest here uh, I just want you to keep that in mind as a barometer for what it theoretically takes to lose your job here. Mm, Dave Hodge yeah. was replaced by Canada's mayonnaise uncle, a lukewarm slice of white bread named Ron <laughs> McLean, both as the host of HNIC and as the foil to grapes during Coach's Corner. Mm. Jerry's own role expanded over time to include other parts on and around the show, and the duo of him and McLean became the faces of not only Hockey Night in Canada as a television program, but of hockey in Canada generally. Mm. With this context, let's dive into some of the highlights of Don Cherry's broadcasting career. Things were off to a great start initially, as evidenced by the following passage taken from the Canadian Encyclopedia. Quote, Within one month of working on Hockey Night in Canada in 1980, the CBC wanted to fire Cherry to, to quote, protect the English-speaking children of Canada, end quote. There was criticism of the heavily colloquial, often fragmented way Cherry spoke on television. CBC God. executive producer Ralph Mellenby defended Cherry at the time, believing that his approach connected with many blue-collar Canadians. When Cherry was told by a CBC producer that he had to speak proper English or he would be fired, mm. Mellenby uh, reassured Cherry. You just speak hockey, he said. Everyone in a bar knows what you're talking about. Don't you worry about proper English. <laughs> in addition to his platform on Coach's Corner, Cherry variously hosted a variety of things over the years, including a TV show called Grapevine, a radio segment called Grape Line, 
Uh, and I thought I read about a Hockey Night in Canada segment called Cherry's Picks, but I couldn't find it when I was going back through it, and I may have hallucinated it. Mm. But perhaps most famously, a long stretch of home video highlight compilations initially called Don Cherry's Rock'em Sock'em Hockey. The title was a clear allusion to the popular Rock'em Sock'em Robots toys, although they eventually were forced to release them simply under the name Don Cherry, because they absolutely did not hold naming rights to the term Rock'em Sock'em <laughs> at any point. Beautiful. By now, you've both sat mm-hmm. through a lot without actually getting to hear what Don actually sounds like. Let's check oh out the God. first mm. minute of the very first installment of Don Cherry's Rock'em Sock'em Hockey from 1989. Uh, and I, like I said, I would love to be able to do an impression of this man, but I'm going to let him speak for himself. I <laughs> hope you are prepared for... Um, I didn't really clock this as a kid because to me, like people just sounded like people if they were Canadian, but this might be one of the thickest Canadian <gasps> accents going. Oh, I'm so excited. <laughs> Get ready folks for the next little while. We're going to show you what I call rock'em sock'em hockey. We're going to start with the goaltenders. Now, why would anybody want to be a goaltender? Blue likes them, but she's a little flaky too. Jerry Cheever is the flakiest guy of them all. No, I'm just kidding, Jerry. I remember one time in Philadelphia, it was unbelievable. Billy Barber cut around the outside, let a shot go you couldn't believe, hit Jerry right between the eyes, blood's coming all over blue you can't believe. Well, I go out, there's my meal ticket, I can't believe it, there's my meal ticket lying there. I go out, I pull the mask off, blood's coming from everywhere. I say, Jerry, Jerry, speak to me, you okay? He looks up at me with one eye and he says, I'm okay, grapes, how's the, how's the crowd taking it? Okay, let's take a look at the goalies. Now we're going to show oh you why you have to be a little flaky to be a goalie. Watch Strudland, Sent, Goslin, Lion. Donnelly nailed Hayward. It's just so reassuring to see that, like, old sports types, crusty old sport guys are just the same in every country. I feel like I've seen the Australian version of this dude on TV so many times. I feel like I've filmed this guy. <laughs> Yeah. I I just I love how he maintained that level of energy, and I I, I, I like initially on one breath. yeah, and initially I was like, oh no, this this is this just seems pretty normal. This is like just a guy, but but wow, that that sentence just went all over the place. <laughs> like, I hope I hope you're prepared lo- for more of this. Yes, well, honestly, I I I expected him to be more incoherent. Like, I could follow what he was saying mostly. Like, I lost track mm-hmm. a little bit of what he was talking about. It's just like, mm-hmm. oh, is he talking about the dog? No, he's talking yeah. about a hockey player. Okay, yeah. cool. Mm. <laughs> Hold that thought. Okay. Ah, all right. I, all right. I should note, I ended it on that one of a goalie getting absolutely smoked. Mm. It's worth noting that, like, the rules have changed. They're tightened up more now. That was never a legal thing to do. He doesn't mention this. He doesn't really, like, highlight this. But, like, that's a penalty. You're not allowed to do that. <laughs> Just, just to be clear. Yeah. Uh, while fighting was actually just one component of these collections, big hits also featured heavily, owing in part to Cherry's affinity for, another scare quote, tough hockey. While an outspoken of cr- uh, critic of conduct he considered dishonorable, dirty, or dangerous, and like what he considered is doing a lot of, uh, carrying a lot of weight there. Mm. He also considered fighting to be integral to the game itself, particularly in enforcing its unwritten honor code. Hmm. 
Don frequently huh. invoked this idea of toughness as a fundamental part of what he considered to be a Canadian style of play. Uh, okay. And that is uh, where I want to end the first part of this one. So, um, yeah, how do, you, how do you feel so far? I'm good. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> I'm uh, learning. T- yeah, <laughs> yeah, so I uh, just want you to keep in mind, he was voted seventh greatest Canadian of all time. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. yeah. But we haven't been able to see his full legacy, so maybe it'll hold up. I don't know. <laughs> how old is he now like uh, is uh he, or is I, he past i don't want to get ahead of myself so okay 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 um but i, I can tell you the year of his birth because i did already say that uh yeah, he was yeah, born yeah. So, in uh february 5th 1934 okay 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 mm-hmm. all right and welcome to the future uh, i'm here again with lucas and jules we're here in the future because Despite the um, several hours that we recorded previously, there are a few things afterward that during the edit, I concluded that I'd really felt like I'd whiffed on not showing either because I kind of neglected to or because I just found new stuff. Um, (laughs) So one of the things that was kind of teased at when we originally recorded was that I was going to watch... uh, Start watching the Greatest Canadian DVDs. (gasps) and i have and i've watched uh some parts of it including the entire um pitch for don cherry and (laughs) that honestly might be its own dive at some point because (laughs) there's so much going on in it we're going to start with a little diversion into the real hero of this story which is of course multimedia heartthrob george strombolopoulos yes george yes and oh I don't boy. I don't know if I just memory hold this if I didn't actually remember it at the time. Um because I, I know I was reading after about his he kind of had a uh not a sign on, it was just like a sign on catchphrase that he would use at the beginning of the hour and George Strombolopoulos tonight. Um that he he used like very regularly. And it's an unbelievably bold catchphrase. And what was funny about it and why I kind of needed the time to find it anyway to present to you is that it basically doesn't exist in extant form in the internet. But as soon as I read about it, I was like, yes, that was it. That was his catchphrase. Holy shit. And <laughs> I had to dig. I was like trying to torrent stuff. Like, do the people have his show on torrent sites? Not really. I was trying to like use the Wayback Machine to find something in the archive that would work. I finally found somewhere deep in the recesses of YouTube, somebody had kind of thrown up a clip of that, in, that happened to include uh, an intro because a lot of the stuff that is archived starts after the intro. Like it starts as soon as he introduces the guest, which is after he does a little kind of opening monologue. Often it's a story. So without further ado, um, I'm going to just play for you the one surviving intro I can find on YouTube where he says the line. It's so nice to be with you today. I'm your boyfriend, George Strombolopoulos. Is that the catchphrase? That is the catchphrase. He opened, I don't know if it was like the entire run of the show, but for like solidly uh, several years, he would open the show with, hi, I'm your boyfriend, George Strombolopoulos. 
which I think is just a very powerful move. That's fun. So he's Canada's boyfriend. Yeah, like I think you can even find like you can find people referring to it online. There's a few like like it's mentioned in articles. I think it's mentioned the Wikipedia page, which is why I was reminded of it. But yeah, that was the he just he he's opened with that and then just went right into it. And I was like, man, like yeah, oh, someone's got to take up that mantle. That's phenomenal. I in in multiple in a couple of my friend groups, I do refer to myself as everyone's boyfriend. Um, so I vibe with him. Yeah. I vibe with George. So like, was he, was he a teen heartthrob as well? I'm not sure if you mentioned that. Yeah. He was a, he was a video jockey originally is how he kind of broke out on like our kind of Canadian MTV on much music. So he started as a video jockey and then he got into having this like interview show and I think he had some other things in between, but yeah, I mean, it's funny because I often think about like, well, how do you introduce a podcast and you know, there's so many people out there making their own content with their own personality. And I don't think I've really come across anyone that has just a beautiful and snappy intro as hi, I'm your boyfriend. So. (laughs) So beautiful. I want to steal it. Yeah. 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 We can, we are all Mm. podcast boyfriends now. Yeah. 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 I, I, part of me wants to just delete this and I'm just going to steal that as completely lift it for my own intro and just hope nobody notices. (laughs) (laughs) Rival boyfriends. Yeah. Mm. Well, you know, I feel like there can be more than one boyfriend. Yeah. So, like a like an harem anime. Hmm. Yeah, that's your. It's, it's, oh God, it's your harem. harem that's also a nightmare blunt rotation because it's yeah, because all podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> so many bearded men with glasses. Hmm. So, um. The other thing is so irrelevant to our story, but it is literally the only other piece of video footage that confirms the existence of this catchphrase uh, because there is, um, I don't know what the context of it is. It's just something made by the CBC and they're goofing on George Strombolopoulos with this little, uh, this is like a fake promo for a fake show. So here we go. This fall, Kids CBC presents George Strombolopoulos Jr. After School. Hello, welcome to the show, Canada. I'm your bestest friend, George Jr. Wow. Good Lord. Yeah, I have nothing to comment about that other than like, yep. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I guess it's good he doesn't say boyfriend. That could have been. Mm. I wonder if they were in the writer's room and they were just like, nah, he can't say that. That feels weird. Mm. could be i do find it a bit odd that i feel like that kid is like 12 but kind of talking like a five-year-old i don't know if anybody else kind of got that mm. feeling but yeah a little lispy i i just assumed like oh no maybe he just talks like that but yeah mm. good point <laughs> some kind of like reverse precociousness somehow yeah i, don't I have know no what idea call it. all right let's get into the meat here so like i said i have watched part of the dvds and I haven't watched all of the pitches. I've skipped through a bunch of them, but I have watched the Don Cherry one its entirety. And it is, as mentioned before, presented by professional wrestler Brett the Hitman Hart, who's probably the least articulate, I think, of the candidates from what I've seen, which is like a little bit funny because it's not that like a lot of people who are, you know, big meatheads or athletes, like you wouldn't expect them to be articulate. But, you know, like the pro wrestlers, like they were always on microphones talking yeah yeah so who knows so the one thing i really picked up on that is kind of a recurring theme 
throughout his pitch for Don Cherry that I didn't really notice in the other uh, candidates' videos, which was instead of just talking about like, here's why I think this is a great Canadian, um, he did a lot of like, people say Don sucks for this reason, but, which I'm not sure is the best foot to start with. <laughs> and, I like it as just like like doing it as like a refutation. Um, yeah, which I get, I, I get very pro wrestler energy. I mean, I guess. Mm. He's like he certainly is a good it tracks. It tracks to have Bret Hart as the um as the candidate for him, or sorry, as the advocate for him. But yeah, uh here's a very unfairly cropped portion I took from him, you know, trying to sell us on Don Cherry. All right. He didn't build a railway, he didn't establish universal health care, he didn't give us a flag. <laughs> Beautiful. Like I'm not sure that's the cell that you think it is, but I don't know. I think that there are some people who'd be like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he's definitely pitching for an audience, and I think it did mm. resonate with that audience. So like look, look, unfortunately, he's kind of bringing me on size. Just like mm. you can just be sometimes entertaining in real in a real dumb guy way. And maybe that speaks more to me and what resonates with me personally. <laughs> But uh, but no, him coming out of the gate like that, being like, this guy's shit, but <laughs> is beautiful. But also the fact that Brett Hitman Hart, like you said, he does not seem very articulate or comfortable, even though he's effectively a theater person. It, it, it's beautiful. It's a it's a perfect intro. I mean, he's a third. He is a theater person who I think has a decent amount of head drama. So that's true. Yeah, good point. All right. So, and speaking of uh, entertaining dumb guy energy, this is something uh, I'm very excited about, and I'm going to offer a glimmer of hope here. When we talked about Don Cherry's last game ever coaching in the NHL for the Colorado Rockies, it was a winning effort from a very bad team. And there was the mention of his entrance onto the ice, which was in a cowboy hat going under the play sticks of the players. Yes. And, you know, we were yeah. kind of idly wondering, like, well, oh, wouldn't it be beautiful to have that footage? And I don't have that oh. footage. Oh. But <laughs> there is a clip in the Don Cherry uh, pitch episode which does show the end of that game. And the cowboy hat is visible in the footage. So I'm just going to quickly roll that. It's very brief. And as you watch me walk off here, it's the last time I ever coached oh. in the National Hockey League. Oh. They stole his hat. Yeah. yeah. So the hat Cat is theft. real and the footage, mm. like at least partial footage of that game survives. I don't know what kind of archive they went to for this, but that does give us, you know, a bit of optimism that somewhere out there, there is the footage of him entering the game in the cowboy boots in, you know, under the tunnel of sticks. There needs to Must be like a, a Don Cherry specific film and sound archive. <laughs> yeah i'm gonna have to start creating it or something i gotta start doing some like, like freedom of information requests to the cbc <laughs> the other fun thing about the hat is apparently like from what i can tell it was not just for this game because there's at least one other piece of footage of him wearing it while coaching oh whoa oh it's glorious yeah yeah what's, so i think that was just his like coaching outfit what's going God, on on the front of it I think that's yeah. just sort of like a gold, like tassel-y. It's not the right word, but it's a. Uh... Yeah, I mean it's flamboyant. I mean it, you'd expect nothing less from him. 
Mm. All right, so that's it for the bonus content for part one. Um, we'll have some even juicier stuff in the next part, um, but for now, we're going to duck back out and return to the regularly scheduled programming. Yeah, I, I didn't want to get bogged down in, like, the role that, you know, fighting plays in hockey. My only reference for it is, like, an Xbox hockey game that my housemates had, like, 10 years ago where you could just... where biffing was a part of it. You could just throw down. So... I, yeah, I don't know if that's been, like you've said, reassessed or, you know, <laughs> how violent it's considered a sport nowadays or if that's part of, like, a shameful thing that no one wants to do. Like, And now you're doing the foreshadowing. <gasps> ah. Mm. This is a proud Australian Gothic tradition. Mm-hmm. You're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so right now we have to do the podcast kayfabe, but for, uh, pretending that we're actually recording these, like, a week apart and uh, take the time now to uh, plug your shows. You can listen to Australian Gothic at uh, anywhere where all podcasts are sold. Uh, we're on Twitter still, I think, as Ozgoth Podcast. Yeah, we have a website, most importantly. Go to that. And you can check uh, me and some friends out at uh, Born Under Punches. Don't bother trying to find it. Uh, it is impossible with the way SEO works. Um, there, there'll be links in the description of wherever you're watching or hearing this, and uh, that'll take you everywhere else. Uh, yeah, so. Thanks for coming, guys, and we will (laughs) see you in part two. Bye. Bye. Born Under Punches is recorded primarily in a Miskwetsiwaskaikan, in the traditional territory of the Nehiyawak, Nakoda, Nitsitapi, Nakawe, Metis, and other nations, also known as Edmonton, Alberta, in Western Treaty 6 territory. It was presented this week by me, Kelly Gomo, and the wonderful and patient Lucas and Jules from Australian Gothic. Lucas got their Twitter handle wrong back there, so check the description for the various social media links for the show and its contributors. In particular, we'd love to have you in our Discord server, whether to discuss Canuck as a slur or any of our other content. This episode drew from a huge number of sources, including content that we do not own, so you will also find a link to a detailed list of attributed sources. Other Creative Commons licensed media is used sporadically and is attributed in the episode description. Thanks for listening, and happy trails to you.